Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to Central Library. My name is Kate Powell. I'm a member of the library's uh, board of directors and trustees. And on behalf of CEO Carla Hayden, I'd like to welcome you all here to a very special edition of our Writers Live series. Um, this is going to be a truly wonderful evening as we welcome to Baltimore from New York one of my personal favorite authors. And I'm very honored to be able to introduce you um, to her introduce her to you tonight and you to her. Um, I should mention that the interestings uh, will be sold outside in the hallway right after the reading um, by uh, Greetings and Readings Bookstore and, um, and those copies will be signed by, by Meg. Um, strong book sales help us keep great authors um, interested in coming to the Pratt Library. So if you don't own a copy of the interestings already, um, consider purchasing one tonight and having it signed. Um, and if you would like more information on upcoming author events at the Pratt Library, please visit our website, prattlibrary.org, or grab a copy of the Compass newsletter on your way out, or follow us on Facebook um, and Twitter. We're very active there. Um, now back to our special guest of the evening. Meg Willitzer's writing career began more than 30 years ago, and when you see her, you would think that that can't possibly be true, because she looks about 30. So um, how could that be? But it is, and she studied creative writing at Smith College. She graduated from Brown University in 1981, and amazing to me, because I spent my college days doing other things, um, wrote her first novel, Sleepwalking, while she was still in college, and it was published the year after she graduated. Um, she's taught creative writing at the University of Iowa's um, Writers Workshop at Skidmore College um, and uh, more recently at Princeton University and she currently works as an instructor at the MFA program um, at Stony Brook Southampton. Two films have been based on her work and I think question might be whether one anyone is interested in the interestings because um, I think it's very much set for film. But This Is My Life was based on her 1988 novel which was directed by and championed by the late great Nora Ephron and the TV movie Surrender, Surrender Dorothy which starred uh, Diane Keaton was based on her 1998 novel. So throughout her 30-year career, Meg Wolitzer has written about real-life issues, so love and marriage and divorce and sex and passion and sex books and parents and children, and her protagonist tends to be women. So it might be easy to sort of label her novels as women's fiction. You know, no offense to women's fiction, but that's not how I see and how many see uh, Meg Wolitzer's work. Um, the New York Times Sunday Book Review, which in our house is the Bible, um, has compared Meg Wolitzer's The Interestings to Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections and Jeffrey uh, Eugenides' The Marriage Plot. All are big, ambitious, entertaining novels that explore relationships in America. In The Interestings, Meg Wolitzer follows a group of six friends from the time they meet at adolescence at this very artsy summer camp in the Berkshires into adulthood. And it's a group that nicknamed, that names themselves, somewhat ironically, uh, the Interestings. The characters are complex. The, stories explores, the story explores the meaning of talent, the nature of envy, the role of class and power and money uh, from the Nixon era to post-9-11 New York City. I read that a friend joked to Meg that she is a 30-year overnight success. Um, <laughs> I don't know why it took so long for people to realize it, but I guess some things are worth waiting for. Please welcome Meg Wolitzer. Just to set the record straight, I did do some of those other things in college too. I just, it wasn't, it wasn't all novel writing all the time, Kate, lest you think I'm that good. Oh, excellent. Well. I am really, really thrilled to be here. I love libraries so much, actually. And um, when I was growing up, I grew up on Long Island uh, in the town of Syosset, which some of you may know by its Native American name, Exit 43. Um, <laughs> my mother, Hilma Wallitzer, is a novelist. And she was starting to write when I was young. And we would go to the library. But first, we would go out to the one Chinese restaurant in town. And then we would go to Baskin Robbins, where you had 31 flavors. And then we would go to the library, where you really, really had choice. And because my mother was a writer, 
they let us take out as many books as we wanted. And I thought this was the coolest thing in the world. I would go into the children's room and I would take out, you know, Go Ask Alice and Cherry Ames Cruisers and a huge stack of books and I would saunter up to the counter feeling so important because we could take out as many as we wanted. I sort of felt like our family was kind of like a Jewish bookish version of the Kennedys strolling around Hyannis Port. Um, but having a mother who was a writer was really instrumental in making me a writer, I have to say. Um, during the Q&A of a reading that I did once, and I put this into this novel, The Interestings, in fact, a woman said to me afterwards, um, my daughter wants to be a playwright, but I know how hard it is to do that. What should I tell her? And I said, well, is she talented? And she said, oh, absolutely. And I said, and does she absolutely want to do this? And she says, yes, she's burning to do it. And I thought about it, and I said, you know, the world will probably whittle your daughter down. A mother never should. And this is really my experience. My mother never whittled me down. And nobody had given her, my mother, uh, that kind of support ever. She grew up in a family where they didn't feel that it was important for girls to go to college. But she was a true autodidact, loved to read, and started publishing when I was young. And the women's movement really, really helped her in a big way, um, give her the courage to write when she had no experience doing that. And this, to give you a, a sense of her mindset at the time, this is back in the era when women's magazines published great fiction. Do some of you remember this? You could have on one page that recipe for the casserole with the green beans and the dirty onion rings from the can. And then on another page, you'd have a story by Joyce Carol Oates. And that is gone. My mother's first short story, which she sold to the old Saturday Evening Post, was called Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket. And I really think if she hadn't started writing, she would have gone mad, too. But I myself actually was very affected by the women's movement too. And when I was 14, I started a consciousness raising group in my junior high school. And we sent a letter to the, yeah, you see where this is going. We sent a letter, we sent a letter to the National Organization for Women asking for a list of topics. And they sent us a brochure with topics like sexual fulfillment and you when we wanted PSATs, don't stress out. So it was not exactly right. But um, I also had a teacher when I was young who affected me tremendously. Her name was Mrs. Gerby, and in first grade she would invite me up to her desk um, to dictate stories to her because she could write them down a lot faster than I could, and she saw something in me. And I, I sort of felt like a businessman, and she was my executive secretary. I'd be kind of like, take a letter, Mrs. Gerby. Um, and my mother saved some of these stories. And I was looking at one recently, and... It, it's about two truckers, naturally. You think of me, you think of truckers. Um, and I tried to understand, and the dialogue in it, really, this is not a joke, goes, get up on the rig, Mac. And I don't think I knew what a rig was. I had no idea of what a rig was. But I, I think what I was trying to do was approximate the world. And that's how a writer enters a book or enters the world of being a writer. Um, I feel like... Every novel is like an advent calendar. There are various doors that you can go in. And one thing that a writer tries to do is develop a sensibility. And when I think about that word, it's very vague. And if I just left it like that, it sort of would leave you with almost words that sound good but don't really say anything. So maybe to kind of narrow it down a little bit more, there's um, a wonderful essay by Zadie Smith called Fail Better, and you can find it online. And she says in this essay, when I write, I am trying to express my way of being in the world. And I think that's really what most of the writers I know try to do. Um, I thought I would really, you know, talk a little bit more about this and then read from the interestings, and I hope to have a Q&A. Um, I will do this. I'll be so swift and economical in what I have to say tonight that it will go by really fast. It'll feel like um, one of those abridged versions of those classic novels that children read, you know the ones that go, all happy families are alike. But Anna Karenina's family was different. <laughs> they had some problems. Look out, Anna, here comes a train, the end. Um, so, you know, the Interestings, if, if you haven't read it, um, opens at a summer camp in 1974. And how many people in this room went to summer camp? Oh, a lot, a lot. But then I always say, okay, um, for those of you who didn't go to summer camp, you don't have to feel left out, you don't have to leave in a huff right now, um, because this book isn't a summer camp novel. In fact, it follows the characters for almost 40 years after that summer. 
as they enter the soft pudding of middle age and their lives become somewhat disappointed. So how many people here have entered the soft pudding of middle age and feel somewhat disappointed? Oh, now I got the whole room. That's fabulous. Now everybody can talk. Nobody's going to be left out. The weird thing about the novel for me was that I was just, I dedicated the book to my parents and to my best friend who I met that summer that I went there. And I, I was saying to her on the phone, why didn't I think to write this book long before I did? Because we always talked about that summer that we met. We would bore our husbands, like, oh, here comes the story of how Meg and Martha met. And, you know, it's not really that interesting. Well, I think it is. But um, I think that the reason is because, as I said, it's not a summer camp novel. And I had to kind of get oldish in order to see what it was. I was on the Diane Reem show, if, if you've watched that show, and, and we were talking about, watch, sorry, listen to that show. Yeah, if you watch, not a lot of action. Um, <laughs> um, a face made for radio. Uh, you know, that, she, we were talking about, I guess, her sense of, in, in the interestings, that it's about that moment when you find your cohort, when you find your people when you find your tribe. And it can happen anywhere. It doesn't have to happen at a summer camp. It can happen at school. It can happen in somebody's backyard. Um, you know, I think that for me in this book, it's really about when adults aren't around, like a giant cartoon of peanuts, you know, a little bit. Things have to happen. But I didn't exactly find my people that summer because I hadn't really become them yet. And talking about approximating the world with fiction, when you're coming of age, you fake it a little bit. You act cooler, smarter, more interesting than you are because you want to be with those people. And I met these kids at this summer camp and they were extraordinary. Um, they were interesting. Many of them were from New York City and they lived lives that I couldn't even imagine. For me, New York City was a place where you went in the back of the station wagon that my mother had bought with the money from the short story. And you went to the one Lebanese restaurant my father had heard about in the city. And then to MoMA, where I would stand there like this, so bored, until we got to leave, because you're with your parents. But when I went there and I met these incredible teenagers, I started spending a lot of time in New York City, going to their houses, seeing you know the things that interested them. They were they took themselves seriously in a way that I had never really thought to do. I had started writing earlier because of Mrs. Gerby, and I had, um, but somebody had given me a diary actually, like the summer before camp started, and I was very uh, Virginia Woolfish about it. And like in the very beginning, I'm kind of writing like, today I watched Bewitched, you know, I'm like writing my kind of thing. <laughs> But then after a while, I got bored doing this, and I put it down. And then I, felt, then I picked it up months later. I felt very, very guilty that I hadn't written in my diary. So I went back, and on every empty page, I wrote, nothing happened, nothing happened, so that in the future, I could look back and think I hadn't been remiss in not filling it in. But that summer, there was one girl at camp who was so talented in acting. Um, I was very bad. I, I was doing acting, but I kept putting on that horrible Catherine Hepburn voice, Mother, are you there? Like in every play that I was in, regardless of what it was. But she was really, really good. Oh, it's, it's a related voice to the poetry voice that some of you may have heard if you go to readings. I come into the room. The oranges are on the table. I am a woman who lives in Brooklyn. I mean, I don't know. I feel like they all got together and said, let's speak in this one voice. I don't know. But I wasn't good. But I knew that I wanted to be around this thing, this expression thing. And that's really, it, it lit a fire under me. And for years after that summer, I had dreams that I was going back to camp, but it was sort of dusty and dirty, and it wasn't the same place that I'd been to. It was more like a pun. It was more like a campsite than it was the camp. And I was older, and I couldn't fit in there. So what did it mean? And I thought about it, and then I wrote novels and had children and you know had a big life and a big career. and. Then one day I realized the thing that was so poignant to me was where it all starts. I think I've written about adolescence a lot because it's a time of firsts. And that's why I think those of us who think about adolescence remember it so well because this is like, I mean, I don't know, for me, I'm practically smelling love's fresh lemon right now in the air. Uh, it's a time of firsts and that you don't get that ever again. So the novel, um, which isn't about summer camp and is about friendship and is about what happens to talent over a long period of time. It's also somewhat about envy and envy for the quiet envy you could feel for people you really love. Um, I was very, very struck by 
the Michael Apted films, the Up films, if some of you saw them, Seven Up, and the most recent one was 56 Up. He started filming a group of British school children every seven years. And it's the most incredible enterprise, I think, to see how people change and how they stay the same. And there was one girl who, in the first film, Susan or Susie, is very posh. A lot of it is about class. And she's like, I don't care for that. And then when she's around 28, her father dies. And she becomes sympathetic because life is not a straight road. The girl at camp who was the most wonderful actress, we all were positive she was going to become famous because that's the way children think. You know, for a long time, I didn't know what had happened to her because we didn't have the internet. And then we got the internet, and you can look everybody up and basically stalk them online. I've heard tell. Um, <laughs> and I saw that she'd become an emergency room physician. And that was really interesting to me. And I thought, what is, what can I infer from that? And it's probably a big leap, but here's what I decided. The reason she was really good when she was on stage when we were young is because she had empathy. She was able to go into these characters' lives. And that's what we want in our doctors, too. You know that study that was done recently that said that uh, people who read fiction have a greater capacity for empathy? We all know that, right? We all, it's like, but finally we have the science to back it up. We know that it's true. I don't want to live in a country that doesn't read fiction because it's a country that wouldn't value empathy. And we know that reading about people's lives that we might never know about is what we find in the pages of fiction. So I thought that I would read um, a very, very compressed version of chapter one. Uh, it's like, it's so different. The chapter is quite long. This is short-ish. Um, it's sort of like a bullion cube version of this chapter. So it shows you really um, who the, the main characters are when they meet when they're young. But if you read the book, it follows them into their 50s. So this is the opening. And, and bear with me, because they are very full of themselves in its very 1970s behaviors. <laughs> On a warm night in early July of that long evaporated year, the interestings gathered for the very first time. They were only 15, 16, and they began to call themselves the name with tentative irony. Julie Jacobson, an outsider and possibly even a freak, had been invited in for obscure reasons, and now she sat in a corner on the unswept floor and attempted to position herself so she would appear unobtrusive yet not pathetic, which was a difficult balance. It had been miraculous when Ash Wolf had nodded to her earlier in the night at the row of sinks and asked if she wanted to come join her and some of the others later. Some of the others, even the wording was thrilling. Julie had looked at her with a dumb, dripping face, Sure, she'd said, out of instinct. What if she'd said no, she liked to wonder afterward, in a kind of strangely pleasurable, baroque horror. Yet having said sure at the sinks in the girls' bathroom, here she was now, planted in the corner of this unfamiliar, ironic world. Irony was new to her and tasted oddly good, like a previously unavailable summer fruit. Soon she and the rest of them would be ironic much of the time, unable to answer an innocent question without giving their words a snide little adjustment. Fairly soon after that, the snideness would soften, the irony would be well mixed with seriousness, and the years would shorten and fly. Then it wouldn't be long before they all found themselves shocked and sad to be fully grown into their finalized, thicker adult selves with almost no chance for reinvention. That night, though, long before the shock and the sadness and the permanence, as they sat in the wooden boy's teepee for the first time, Ash Wolf said, Every summer we sit here like this, we should call ourselves something. Why, said Goodman, her brother, so the world can know just how unbelievably interesting we are? We could be called the unbelievably interesting ones, said Ethan Figman. How's that? The interesting, said Ash. That works. So it was decided. From this day forward, because we are clearly the most interesting people who ever lived, said Ethan, let us be known as the interestings, and let everyone who meets us fall down dead in our path from just how fucking interesting we are. In a ludicrously ceremonial moment, they lifted paper cups. The name was ironic, and the improvisational christening was jokily pretentious. But still, Julie Jacobson thought, they were interesting. These teenagers around her, all of them from New York City, were like royalty and French movie stars with a touch of something papal. Briefly, in that summer of 1974, when she or any of them looked up from their one-act plays and animation cells and dance sequences and acoustic guitars, they found themselves staring into a horrible doorway, and so they quickly turned away. By the end of summer, Nixon would lurch away, leaving his damp slug trail, and the entire camp would watch on an old Panasonic that had been trundled into the dining hall by the camp owners, Manny and Edie Wonderlick, 
two aging socialists who were legendary in the tiny, diminishing world of aging socialists. Now they were gathering because the world was unbearable, and they themselves were not. Ethan Figman, thick-bodied, unusually ugly, sat with his mouth slack and a record album in his lap. Figman, increase the velocity. The natives are restless, said Jonah Bay. Julie knew almost nothing yet, but she did know that Jonah, a good-looking boy with blue-black hair that fell to his shoulders, was the son of the folk singer Susanna Bay. Across from Ethan, Jonah sat with his steel-string guitar, wedged between Julie and Kathy Kiplinger, a girl who danced feverishly all day in the dance studio. Kathy was big and blonde and far more womanly than most girls could be comfortable with at any age. Above them all, on a top bunk, sprawled Goodman Wolf, six feet tall, sun-sensitive, big-kneed and hyper-masculine in khaki shorts and buffalo sandals. The Wolf siblings had been coming to Spirit in the Woods since they were 12 and 13. They were central to this place. Goodman was big and handsome and blunt and unsettling. His sister Ash was waifish, open-hearted, a beauty. Tonight, the screen door had winced shut behind the departing, shoot-away boys who lived here, and then the three girls from the other side of the pines had arrived. Julie Jacobson, at the start of that first night, had not yet transformed into the far better-sounding Jules Jacobson, a change that would deftly happen a little while later. As Julie, she'd always felt all wrong. Over the year in which her father was dying, she'd occupied herself by zealously splitting her split ends, and her hair had become frizzed and wild. A haircut and a perm might help, her mother said. After the perm, when Julie saw herself in the salon mirror, she ran out into the parking lot, her mother chasing after her, shouting, Oh, honey, it won't be so dandelion-y tomorrow. Now, among these people who'd been coming to this teenage performing arts and visual arts summer camp for two or three years, Julie, a dandelion-y outsider, was surprisingly compelling to them. Just by being here in this teepee at the designated hour, they all seduced one another with greatness or with the assumption of eventual greatness, greatness in waiting. During that first hour, books were discussed, mostly ones written by spiky and disaffected European writers. Gunter Grass is basically God, said Goodman, and the two other boys agreed. Julie had never actually heard of Gunter Grass, but she wasn't going to let on. If anyone asked her, she would insist that she too loved Gunter Grass, although she would add as protection, I haven't read quite as much of him as I would like. I think Anais Nin is God, said Ash. How can you say that, said her brother? She's the worst. Anais Nin and Gunter Grass both have umlauts in their names, <laughs> remarked Ethan. Maybe that's the key to their success. I'm going to get one for myself. Speaking of names, there's a girl in our cousin's school, said Ash, whose name is Crema Siemens. Crema Siemens, said Ethan. It's like a flavor of Campbell's soup that got discontinued immediately. Now let's all observe a moment of silence for poor, poor Crema Siemens, Julie heard herself say. She hadn't planned to say a word tonight, and as soon as she spoke, she felt this was a mistake. Jacobson speaks, said Goodman Wolf. He looked at her and smiled, and she had to prevent herself from reaching out to touch the planes of his golden face. See, I knew there was a reason I invited her in, said Ash. Go, Jules. Jules, there it was, right there, the effortless shift that made all the difference. She was Jules suddenly, and she would be Jules forever. They had only a little over an hour together, and then one of the counselors on patrol, a blunt-haired weaving instructor and lifeguard from Iceland named Gudrun Sigurd's daughter, came into the teepee with a bulky flashlight that looked as if it were meant to be used during night ice fishing. She peered around and said, All right, my young friends, I can tell you have been smoking pot. That is not cool, though you may think it is. Well, said Goodman, now that you've made us see the error of our ways, it'll never happen again. That is very nice, said the counselor, but I do not want to see you sent home. Please break this up now, and all you girls, please go back through the pines. So the three girls left, heading away from the teepee in a slow, easy herd with their flashlights leading them. Jules, walking down the path, heard someone call to her. She turned and saw Ethan, who came closer. The other girls kept walking ahead without her. Can I show you something, he asked. She let herself be led down the hill toward the animation shed. Ethan Figman opened the unlocked door. Inside, the shed smelled plasticky, slightly scorched, and he threw on the fluorescent lights. He threaded a projector, then shut off the lights. A cartoon sprang up on a sheeted wall. Figland read the credits, and antic characters began to prance and splat and jabber, speaking in voices that all sounded a little bit like Ethan. 
The characters in Figland were alternately wormy, leery, leering, and adorable, while in the excess light from the projector, Ethan himself was touchingly ugly with a raw sheath of arm skin etched with its own ugly dermatological cartoon. In Figland, characters rode trolleys, played the accordion, broke into the Figman Gate Hotel. No wonder Ethan was beloved here at camp. He was a genius, she saw. The cartoon came to an end and the film flip-flapped on its reel. God, Ethan, Jules said. It's totally original. I love it. What do you know, he said. You love it. Jules Jacobson loves it. Just as she was enjoying hearing the strange name said aloud, Ethan thrust his big head toward hers. His mouth attached itself to her. He smelled mushroomy, feverish, overripe. She yanked her head back and said, wait, what? Then she said, I'm really sorry. Forget it, Ethan said hoarsely. You have nothing to feel sorry about. I mean, people have been rejected by other people since the dawn of time. I've never rejected anyone in my life, said Jules fiercely, although, she added, I've never accepted anyone either. What I mean is, it's never been an issue. Oh, he said. He stayed by her side as they left the animation shed and trudged back up the hill together. When they reached the top, he said, you say you haven't been rejected or accepted, or accepted anyone. You are 100% inexperienced, so maybe you're just nervous. Your nervousness could be masking your real feelings. You think so, she asked doubtfully. Could be, he said. So I have a proposition for you. Reconsider. It was such a reasonable request. She could spend more time with Ethan Figman experimenting with the idea of being part of a couple. All right, she told him, she would reconsider. Only when he dropped her off at her own teepee did he leave her. Jules went inside and stood getting ready for bed. So where were you, Ash asked. Oh, Ethan Figman wanted to show me one of his films, and then we started talking, and, and it just got, it's hard to explain. I know what they're like, Ash said, those moments of strangeness. Life is full of them. What do you mean? Well, said Ash, and she got out of her own bed and came to sit beside Jules. I've always sort of felt that you prepare yourself over the course of your whole life for the big moments. But when they happen, you sometimes feel totally unready for them, or even that they're not what you thought, and that's what makes them strange. That's true, Jules said. That's just what happened to me. A first kiss, she had thought, was supposed to magnetize you to the other person. The magnet and the metal were meant to fuse and melt on contact into a sizzling brew of silver and red. But this kiss had done nothing like that. Jules would have liked to tell Ash all about it now. She wished Kathy weren't here and that Jane Zell weren't here either, or somber-faced Nancy Mangieri, who sometimes placed, played the cello as if she were performing at the funeral of a child. If it were just Jules and Ash, she would have told her everything. But the other girls were circling, and now Kathy Kiplinger was passing around a huckleberry crumble purchased at the bakery in town that afternoon and a warped fork from the dining hall. Someone said, God, it tastes like sex, and everyone laughed, including Jules, who wondered if sex, when it was really good, actually offered the pleasures of a huckleberry crumble. <laughs> the subject of Ethan Figman was now lost for the night. The crumble went around a few more times, and everyone's lips became tribally blue, and then the girls lay down in their separate beds. Nancy, why don't you take out your cello and play us something, Ash said, something with atmosphere, mood music. Even though it was late, Nancy got her cello and sat on the edge of the bed, intently playing the first movement of a cello suite by Benjamin Britten. The stark music drifting from the teepee and scribbling among the trees headed toward the boys, a message in the darkness before lockdown. Over the following few weeks, Jules and Ethan spent a great deal of time alone together. Once, sitting with him by the swimming pool at dusk, she told him about her father's death. Wow, he was 42, Ethan said. Jesus, Jules, that's so young. And it's just so sad that you'll never see him again. He was your dad. He probably used to sing you all these little songs, am I right? No, said Jules. She let her fingers drape through the cold water. But then suddenly she remembered that her father had sung her one song once. Yes, she said, surprised. It was a folk song. Which one? She began to sing in an unsteady voice. Just a little rain falling all around. The grass lifts its head to the heavenly sound. Just a little rain, just a little rain. What have they done to the rain? When she was finished, Ethan just kept looking at her. That killed me, he said. You know what that song's about, right? Acid rain, she asked. He shook his head. Nope, nuclear testing. Your dad was political? No, he wasn't political, said Jules. But she thought of how she hadn't known her father all that well. She'd almost never asked him anything about her, himself, and now she felt terrible. 
He was thin, fair-haired, burdened, and he was dead at 42. So then she and Ethan were crying together, which led to inevitable kissing, which wasn't nearly as bad this time because they both tasted identically of mucus. And it didn't matter to Jules. It didn't matter that she didn't feel excited. One night, the entire camp was instructed to gather on the lawn. No other information was given. Ethan sat with his head in Jules's lap, looking up at the darkening sky and the jumpy Japanese lanterns strung on wires between trees. Manny Wonderlick appeared before everyone and said, Hello, hello, I'd like to introduce a very special surprise guest. Jules craned to see a woman in a sunset-colored poncho carrying a guitar by its neck, picking her way across the grass to take her place on a platform. It was Jonah's famous folk singer mother, Susanna Bay. In person, she was beautiful in the way of very few mothers, her hair long and black and straight. Good evening, spirit in the woods, said the folk singer into a microphone. Are you having a great summer? This place is the most wonderful place on earth. A series of affirmative calls rose up. Then she strummed hard on her guitar and began to sing her signature song, The Wind Will Carry Us. After the performance, which was full of feeling and well-received, everyone stood around and ladled up pink punch from a big metal bowl. Fruit flies twittered on the surface. Ethan said to Jules, The way Susanna sings The Wind Will Carry Us is so sad. Yeah, it really is, she said. It makes me think of the way people devote their lives to each other, Ethan said, and then one of them just leaves or even dies. He was somber, watching her, seeing if the melancholy mood could make her respond to him again. He wrapped his arms around her, and Jules willed herself to want him, for he was brilliant and funny and would always be kind to her and would always be ardent. But all she could feel was that he was her wonderful and gifted friend. I can't keep trying, she said all in a flood, unplanned. It's not what I want to do. You don't know what you want, said Ethan, a little frantic. You're confused, Jules. You've had a major loss this year. You're still feeling it in stages. You know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and all that. Hey, he added, she's got an umlaut, too. <laughs> this isn't about my father, okay, Ethan, said Jules. Galloping into the lantern light at that moment came Goodman Wolf, along with a pouting ceramicist from Girls TP4, who always had clay under her fingernails. They stopped on the edge of the circle, and the girl tipped her head up toward his, and Goodman leaned down, and they kissed. Jules watched as Goodman's mouth pulled away with what she could swear she saw even from a distance, a smear of the girl's colorless lip gloss on his lips, like butter, like a prize. Jules was suffused with a blast of sensation like the light from Ethan's projector. Feelings could come over you in a sudden wild sweep. She could never, ever love Ethan Figman. It would have been exciting to love Goodman Wolf, of course, but that wasn't going to happen either, ever. That kind of wild and beautiful boy could not love a plain girl. There would be no pairing off of any kind this summer, no passionate subsets formed. And though in some ways this was sad, in other ways it was such a relief, for now they could all return to the boys' teepee, the six of them, and take their places in that perfect, unbroken, lifelong circle. The whole teepee would quake in preparation for liftoff as though their kind of irony and their kind of conversation and heightened friendship was so strong it could actually make a small wooden building rise up and hover briefly above the earth. Thank you. Um, so, so, so what happens in the book, um, I'm not going to ruin everything, but um, is that... Uh, the characters get older, and Jules, who has rejected Ethan, but he remains her wonderful friend, and Ash remains her best friend, her best female friend. Um, Ethan and Ash, homely Ethan and beautiful Ash, sort of surprisingly fall in love and get married. And Ethan's cartoon, Figland, which we see in childhood, uh, becomes a nighttime Simpsons-like cartoon and makes his absolute fortune. He becomes phenomenally wealthy. And Ethan and Ash have this life that's so beyond what anyone that Jules knows has. And Jules marries Dennis, who is an ultrasound technician, and they struggle financially. And, and uh, Dennis struggles with depression. And she's always watching as she and her husband are here and her friends are there. So I was interested in that kind of thing that happens. Like a friend calls you up and tells you something wonderful that's happened to her. And you really feel happy for the friend. But I think for some people, for most people perhaps, there's a moment after a while when the ego just sort of 
inserts itself into the room like a moose head mounted on a wall and says, that didn't happen to me. You know, and we weren't talking about you, and yet we're always sort of talking about you. You're so narcissistic. Um, we are. I mean, we're made of ego, I think. So I tried with this novel to really write about what I think, you know, it's like, being a friend, having a long-term friend, and what it's like just sort of being a person in friendships and in couples. So I'm happy to open this to questions uh, rather than read endlessly to you. So, and um, we can do that. Ah, there's a mic. So shy. <laughs> do you want to shout? Do you want to shout it out from where you are? Then, oh, do they want them to go over to the mic? Okay. Could you stand up? Except that we are taping oh, this okay. for podcasting, so we, need the so we really need to hear your question and hear Meg's answer. So I'll pass the microphone to you, and if you'll stand up, please. Talk amongst yourselves in the awkward lull. Okay. Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, uh, I've got the little uh, feature about you in the Sun paper on Sunday. And it ended with a comment that I thought was really interesting about how, you know, you were talking about one of the themes of the book uh, was about talent and how talent develops or doesn't develop or who becomes an artist and who doesn't. And, uh, and you said that um, you ultimately, in a long life as an artist, you can't judge yourself based on sales. You know, you, you have, the process has to be meaningful. Yeah. And but I was thinking about just how in the society, you know, how difficult that is for artists because um, in our culture, money and sales is a measure of success, you know, from everything from you know, the movie box office is reported every week to uh, you know, and how much money things are selling for. So you know, I just was interested in that comment and uh, that you had, and you know, if you had other things to say about that. Yeah, you know, the whole talent and success thing is really confusing sometimes. Um, I feel like, you know, that show, America's Got Talent, really, and there are different versions around the world, Slovenia's Got Talent, whatever. And I think when they, when they show, okay, that Susan Boyle, right, you know, and they show people's mouths dropping open that this homely woman could be so talented. Um, what people were getting excited about was really success, maybe. The idea that, ooh, she's going to become big and successful now. And there's a way in which, you know, part of the internet culture has made things get fused that way. So we're excited by success. There was a really interesting study, um, a, a kind of perception study done by the violinist Joshua Bell, who's, you know, one of the leading violinists in the world. And you probably know about this, a lot of you, that he went into the Washington Metro and played, right, because it's near here. And basically everybody walked by. They just walked by. They had their meeting. You know, I'm meeting Jim at 10. You know, okay, here's Joshua Bell playing. Here's like the most brilliant violinist you'll ever see. No, got to go. I got to, you know, a meeting with Keltone. You know, um, because taken out of context, sometimes it's hard to see talent. And I think that's part of the problem. We like the stuff that's around talent, the noise, the box office, the stuff about it. And, you know, and the country, What I, one of the things that I track in this novel, I think, is that change during the Reagan years, really, when the city became, when like the big art world became about, you know, big, big money. And then it's sort of about wanting to be friends with, you know, gallery owners became stars. It's not just the artists. Then um, hedge fund, people who run hedge funds become famous. And there's a shift there. And that's the moment that, you know, the artists are being forced out of big cities. And I guess it's, it's you know, it's a struggle. When I hear about some countries where, Basically, nobody can make a living as a writer. Um, so there's more interesting work being done because nobody has expectations of trying to sort of do, game the system that you might unconsciously have, and you really do what you want to do. I, you know, I came up with a group of friends who were writing novels, and we all thought that it was going to be equal. We all sort of thought that the the, lev the playing field was level, but it isn't. And it's very, very hard. And... Um, you know, you try to keep your nose down and just do your work. But, of course, it's, there's always distractions. So I don't know if that answers your questions. But it's something, you know, that we all think about. 
Okay. My name's Donna. Hi. It was a great book. I'm here with a book club group of people, and I'm sorry for some of you who didn't finish the book. You should have. Um, Wait, I don't give it away. And I like, I guess, but I am, because at the end... <gasps> what? <laughs> Wait, speak cryptically. Use like a click language. Speak, speak okay, I like books that end more positive, and something happened and it didn't. Is that, is that... That is and true. And for now, you have no idea what I just asked, because I can't <laughs> So why did you end it the way you went? Okay. Boy, that's, this is like, I'm now threading such a needle here. <laughs> How many people haven't read the book? Okay, yeah. I mean, okay. You know, with characters in a novel, the way I feel about what happens to characters in a novel is kind of this. You know, when you start out writing a book, you have a sort of idea of what's going to happen. And sometimes you have a very strong idea of what's going to happen, but you need to be open to that change. I didn't know that this would happen at the end of the book, but I sort of thought it might. And I needed to feel, it felt right. Um, you know, there's a death in the book, okay? I think you're probably smart in figuring that out. And haven't you have deaths in your lives among your friends? I mean, I really have, and I've been very struck by that. And, and, and I've been struck by the way that when it happens, you are so shocked, like as if nobody told you that that would start to happen, really. And I just really kind of wanted to, to write a snapshot of a moment in time for this novel. And that moment... Um, at that point in life felt right to me and uh, it was hard to do I mean you know when you write with when you live it's a very character based book I did an event with Elizabeth Strout a wonderful writer um, and we were talking the event was about character and she was saying something I, I can't get it exactly right but she talked about when she wrote Olive Kitteridge she saw a large woman standing by a picnic table that was her way into the book that was her sort of advent calendar door into the book I started with the idea of talent and what happens to it over time, but almost immediately these characters came up, and Jules and Ethan and Ash in particular. I loved Ethan so much. Ethan became like, I mean, I practically have like a blow-up doll of him at home. I like love him. I, I just like, and actually I had lunch with my editor, and she was, the first draft of the book, he was like a saint. He was like this saint. You know, he's practically going around feeding birds. You know, um, birds are landing on his shoulders. No, um, and she irritably said to me over lunch, he's too good. And I left there, you know, kind of defensive. But I went home and I thought about it. I thought about it. And that was the point at which I gave him a son who was on the autism spectrum who he couldn't love fully. And I was scared to do it because I was afraid that, you know, readers would judge him. But somebody said to me they liked him more when they heard that because it made him more human. So I think deaf. I guess I feel that, you know, as a writer, books are not, I mean, books are meant to give the full package, the full experience. At least that's what I wanted to, wanted to do in this book, to kind of start with that early glowing moment and just keep going. And unfortunately, it goes there. But I'm hoping that it has, says some things that are, you know, not depressing and like a, a Swedish film. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, there are questions. There have to be some. What a shy audience. Yeah, right here. Said something I said. <laughs> so, Meg, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about the essay that you wrote in the New, in the New York Times recently yeah. about the differences between male and female write novelists, and then maybe um, how that might have how that thinking might have influenced the cover art of the interesting. Yes. Um, so I wrote a piece in the New York Times Book Review um, two years ago now. Uh, called The Second Shelf. You can Google it if you Google my name and The Second Shelf. And it was about um, the differences between the way literary fiction by women and men is treated. And one of the things that I noticed when I was writing the piece, really, and thinking about this subject that I thought about for a very long time, is that the book covers often look different. Um, you could and you could have a book by a woman, a literary book, and it might have a little girl in a field of wheat on the cover. And then you'd have a book by a man, and it would have all typeface, which, as a publicist had said to me, says to the reader, this book is an event. But they're both high-quality books. But here's what happens. When the book makes its way onto the desk of a book review editor, and they see the little girl in the field of wheat, or another trope that I found a lot, which is women in water. Um, you know, I, well, first of all, these books then 
are not what? Is there some woman in water thing going on here? Right. Right. Um, it's a man. I, you know, most of the readers in this country and the buyers of fiction are women. So it's correct to think that that's the case. And yet, at the very, very top, you know, substratum, we, we often do look to men for authority in books as in many things. So, um, I mean, the girl in a field of wheat, I just don't see these men kind of walking around carrying the book. Hey, Jim, what's that? What's that you're reading? Oh, a oh, little girl in a field of wheat. I love that book. Yeah. No, I, you know. <laughs> you know. Hey, what? Are you, this is the same voice I'm using. Hey, what are you doing? Yeah, I just, I just blew off Joshua Bell in the metro. This is like <laughs> the same people not go, going to their meetings. Um, uh, so, what is a publisher to do? Uh, because it, when it gets to an editor, that there was a a comment by the editor of the TLS, and I, I don't want to say it because I'm going to get it completely wrong, but he talked about um, how a lot of the readers of fiction in the UK read books that were not the kind that the TLS, a very esteemed publication, Times Literary Supplement, would review. Um, did he get a book across his desk that had a girl in a field of wheat and he didn't go any further? Maybe the prose was absolutely lyrical and beautiful. Who knows? I mean... So I think book covers really, really matter. And the ideal book cover to me is kind of an equal opportunity book. Um, it basically is inviting. It sort of looks edible, you know. Uh, you And my book is very tasty, I want to say. Um, <laughs> so please feel free. Uh, you want it to not keep people out. You want it not to be like, you know how you make decisions without even thinking of them? You know, this book, I don't want to read this book. Something makes you pick up a book. And I'm fascinated by this, actually. Even when you start a book, like in a bookstore, you pick a book up and you give it like two seconds. If this was a blind date, you'd be like saying goodbye before the appetizer. You know, it's like you give it. And the worst thing, of course, is being a novelist, seeing your, somebody's reading your own book and put it back. And it's like, I feel kind of like that line in... Beast of burden, ain't I rich enough? Oh, you know, like what did I, what, what did I have to do to get you to keep reading my book? You know, and there's no way to know really what it is. But I feel that in addition to the cover, um, the reader is asking the writer a very specific question, which is, why are you telling me this? And if that question isn't asked fairly soon, I think the book goes back on the shelf. So it's incumbent upon those of us who write fiction, especially in this nonfiction world, really, to make it have what my first writing teacher, the wonderful novelist Mary Gordon, said uh, is that only write about what's important, to make your work have an imperative. And I always think about that when I'm writing. But back to, just to parenthetically, um, the world of fiction, one thing, I opened with an anecdote, uh, I opened that piece with an anecdote about meeting a man at a party and he heard I was a fiction writer and he asked me the worst question that you can ever ask a writer, which is, never ask a writer this, which is, would I have heard of you? <laughs> now, I started naming my books and he's looking glazed over, you know, wants to pawn me off on his wife thinking that she'll like that. But really the only good answer to that question when somebody asks a writer what I have heard of you is in a more just world. Um, <laughs> so I think that fiction, you know, what I mean about just, just to move slightly away from that answer, did that answer your, yeah. Um, because it's a nonfiction world, really, I mean, it's a world fueled by anxiety. You know, since 9-11 in particular, I feel that there was a desire on a lot of readers' parts to learn about the world, which, of course, is never a bad thing to do. But we need to make the case that fiction contains the truth. I mean, if you remember James Fry, right, when that thing happened to him, so he wrote, uh, I guess when he originally wrote A Million Little Pieces, he wrote it as a novel, and somebody said to him, you should do this as a memoir, and he did it as a memoir, but he embellished stuff, and he was, you know, he got picked by Oprah, which is like, in my world, is like winning Powerball, but then, but then when it was found out that he'd embellished stuff, he had to go on Oprah, which was like the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. It's like being called down in front of the principal of the world. But if he had been, but if he had been allowed to, you know, to tell the truth, not necessarily of what happened, but what could have happened. That's what fiction is. What could have happened, really? I think that he would have been able to go off on more alleys and side trips, which is what we try to do while still containing the truth. I mean, I think that's what fiction really, really does. 
But it's very hard these days because, you know, there's so much text flowing before your eyes every day. A novel is like the little engine that could. A novel is like a low-tech object having to fight with things. And for writers in particular, I'll be writing, working on a complex paragraph, and I'll take a break, and I'll go online, my first mistake, and I'll see top 10 resorts. And I have no plans to go to a resort, <laughs> but I'm looking, clicking through. Ooh, Aruba. I went there once with Bonnie Neller. What happened to her? Oh, Bonnie Neller. Oh, she's a... You know, and then I'm... I've lost my thread. We're losing our threads, and the novel is waiting, pulsing somewhere to the side. So to be a reader in this world requires, and to be a writer really requires a certain kind of discipline that some of us have, you know, are losing, in danger of losing. Hi there. Thank you for coming this evening. Oh, sure. um, I wanted to follow up on this question of, of the cover. Yeah. Talk about the cover. Several weeks ago, I heard someone say, and you know, to a point, it made sense that the large bookstores like, we'll say, Barnes & Noble, really have a great deal of influence on a cover because they know that if they're going to sell it, it's got to have, you know, can't tell a book by its cover and that sort of thing. Right. Do you know anything about that? Was that a correct remark that uh, uh, the large bookstores would have some influence? I, I'm sure they do. I think a lot goes into a cover. I don't know the extent of it, really. Um, when my book... Uh, was designed. I wasn't aware of it being taken. Everybody liked it, and I, you know, it, it basically, I'm sure that's true. I, I can't speak to that more specifically than that. I think that the, you know, the publishers want to do everything they can to get this, into the book, into the hands of readers, you know, um, and they don't want to alienate bookstores, but they want, of course, you want the cover to reflect what the book actually is. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm sure there's some truth to that, really. Uh, my book, I love what they did. So in so my editor marched the book down the hall. Sorry, the second part of that. Um, after I wrote that piece, marched the book down the hall to the art department and said, read this essay that she wrote and now design the book. And that's how they came up with this very striped, really kind of appealing cover. And my publisher, I forgot to bring it tonight. My publisher actually made tote bags based on the cover. It's, they're really great looking. And I feel like, well, what writers have that? Did, did Ernest Hemingway have that? <laughs> I feel so important. Was there a farewell to arms fanny pack? I think not. Um, but you know, whatever gets someone reading is fine with me. I mean, you know, as long as it really seems to represent the book in some way. Uh, yeah. I, I've so enjoyed hearing all of your stories. You're a very, very funny person. I'm curious as to uh, your teaching. And you've talked about how we're all sort of losing our threads <laughs> with everything that's in front of us. With the younger students that you're working with, how do, how, what do you see as their dedication to writing or their feelings about writing? I teach all ages. I mean, a lot of, a lot of it is uh, adults. But I was teaching. But when I was at Princeton this fall, it was a, actually this was a really unusual class. There's this program at Princeton called the Princeton Atelier that Toni Morrison started. And it brings an artist to work together, to teach a class together. And I'd never taught with anyone, artists from different disciplines, so um, who are working on a project together. So I brought in a friend of mine. Do any of you remember the Roaches, the singers, the Roaches? Yeah. So I brought in Suzy Roach, who's my good friend. And we taught a class in, yeah, we are Magante, right? I brought in uh, Suzy, and we taught a class in adaptation. And one thing about young students is that they are so willing, which is so great. You know, when you get older, it's sort of harder, like, you know, it's like we're all kind of Bartleby the Scrivener, you know. But young students are really willing to try a lot of things. So we would, like, send them off, do this, do this. Um, we had them, like, uh, read Spoon River Anthology and then take their own monologues and, and make them concise, sort of like that, and then... Um, uh, make a song based on that. And they were willing to be fluid and try things. And it's that quality, I think, that you need to somehow keep alive, to like pry open the jaws. Are some of you writing at all? It's sort of, it's so funny when I'm sure more of you are writing than said that, because it's like people don't really want to admit it because then you go to the supermarket six months later, hi Madge, I thought you were writing. I haven't seen anything of yours in print. You know, <laughs> Madge, this is the default name that I come up with. It's like that commercial about the, you're soaking in it. I don't know. I'm I'm stuck deeply in the 1970s, as you can see. I think that there's an openness with a lot of young students that is really wonderful, and to try to 
recreate that even you know with students in their 40s and, and older is important I think to just try things um, you know that's another thing like I was once on a panel with a with a young writer and there are a couple of like famous writers on the panel and afterwards she came up to the other writers and said how do you write about the things you write because I know that I have to face like the mothers at my kids school in the morning and I thought you know if you're gonna like not write something because of people that you don't even necessarily like, I mean, your motto kind of as a writer has to be if not now when, but it can be really uncomfortable. It, it can be. Um, I want you. Thank you for saying I'm funny because I want to just say one thing about humor because I think humor in literature in this country is sort of undervalued. We want our writers to be very serious but then funny when they get up before us. It's sort of a hard thing. Like, you know, Jim Kutsia, let's hear your jokes, you know. Um, but humor, yeah, but humor, you know, in, well, there's a difference between a joke and humor in fiction and to that end I'll tell you a quick joke. Um, so it, it was a woman's 100th birthday, and all her family gathered around, and they said, Grandma, you're 100 years old now. Is there anything you've always wanted to do your entire life and never had a chance to do? And she said, well, there is one thing. All my life, I've wanted to go whitewater rafting on the Colorado River. And they thought, oh, all right. So they had her fitted with a tiny helmet and a little IV pole, and they hired a private nurse, and they had her lowered very, very gently over a special raft with rails. And she went whitewater rafting. It was incredible. They lifted her back up. They took her across the country. They flew her home. A year passed. She was 101. And they said, Grandma, you are 101. It's incredible. Is there anything you've always wanted to do your whole life and never had a chance to do? And she said, well, there is one thing. All my life, I've wanted to go whitewater rafting on the Colorado <laughs> River. And the thing, the thing I think about with that joke Think about it this way. The details that I put in that you laughed about, the IV pole for whatever reason, is funny. I put them in just to take them away. And if you do that in a novel, you know, and then it was all a dream, or whatever it is that you put in just to manipulate for some plot point, the reader feels cheated. Why are you telling me this really is a legitimate question to ask when that happens. So I think the details in a novel, which make a novel work, it's about the accretion of details. It's about the layering in a joke, in humor, in a joke. It's often about them being put there to one effect. But I think that in thinking about humor, humor in fiction, for me at least, because I think, you know, when you start to write, and you think about the Zadie Smith idea of writing about to your sensibility, your way of being in the world. I was sort of, you know, one of the funny ones in my group of friends. When I started writing, if I kept that part of me out and was only hushed and lyrical, why would I, why would I withhold part of myself? You want to kind of do the most of you in a book. So it would have to have humor, but the humor would come from the absurdity of our mortal selves and through the characters and who they are in particular, I think. Um, yeah, there's one there. Let's make this the uh, last question, please. There's a lot of pressure on the last question. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be like, where did you get your blouse? Right. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the attribute of envy and uh, Jules' envy? I found that one of the most interesting character traits. And is it something that you felt, or is it something you brought in as part of her character? I think it, I mean, I've been aware of it not in the way that it bothers her. And with Jules's envy, I had to, you know, some people get really mad about it. Like I'll hear from people, like, you know, they get annoyed with characters. They kind of, if the characters don't change on a timetable, you know, that, that they would like. And I, you have to, as a writer, you have to allow your characters to be stuck in certain things or annoying or whatever. Um, I haven't felt it in that way that she did. But I'm aware of moments that I'm not proud of. And I think it's that kind of thing that I wanted to track. Because I hadn't really seen it written about except in bigger, broader ways, really. But that quiet way that nobody really talks about because it doesn't make you look good is something that I think you can try to explore in a novel uh, in a sort of safe place. I feel like the world of characters in a novel, for me, the world of these characters exists sort of inside a dome, like a snow dome. It's sort of like the end of the Truman Show when they realize that they're in a, you know, when he realizes that all along he's been in a kind of plexiglass dome. The characters exist in this kind of safe, separate place. It's almost a laboratory to look at those ideas. Um, I haven't been eaten alive by envy, absolutely not, but I, I, 
I understand what it's like. I think it's a human thing, and I, it's just another thing that I felt was important to show in this book. Because talent, you know, I'll just say in closing, I mean, you, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours, really, for talent. But there's some kinds of talent that you can't give anyone. Ethan has that kind of talent I wanted to show. You can't give it to anyone. And you can't give anyone that kind of money or wealth. Everyone is on their own track. It's not fair. The world isn't fair. So much of what happens to people in their lives is about luck. And that's something that I didn't really understand exactly until I started writing the book. So thank you very much for coming. <laughs>